Welcome to Context Matters. I am Cindy Parker. Given the way our world has been rapidly changing these last few weeks, well, months, really, I feel like we are in the middle of our own experiential learning. We have been thrust into environments that we cannot control, and these experiences are making us question ourselves and our communities. Are we making decisions based on what is good for ourselves as individuals or ourselves as a living community? And who gets to be included in that community? I've been paying a lot of attention to how I'm reacting to social distancing and to self-isolating precautions. And I'm making all kinds of new learning connections to some of my professional work, which hopefully will help for the next book that I want to write. So for me, editing this episode right now was timely, and I warmly welcome you to the conversation table. This week, I talk with Dr. Rob Ribby, who is the director of Honey Rock Outdoor Center for Leadership Development at Wheaton College, and also is the assistant professor of outdoor and adventure leadership. What's up with all these professors and their double titles? Dr. Ruby defines for us what experiential education is and then talks about the ways in which we learn differently when we engage body, movement, mind, and emotions in a situation. And I thought this was a good time to quickly touch base again with my sister Carrie to talk about what she has noticed as valuable to the experience of learning in place instead of just a mental or book learning. Uh, So, Carrie, I wanted to talk to you today about the benefit of us going and seeing the land of the Bible with our own eyes, this experiential interaction with a geography, a culture, the sound, the taste, the flavor of a place. So you have been with me a few different times in Israel. Uh, Is there anything about the experience that stands out to you, which is very different than just mentally reading about something or looking at a picture. It's funny because before the very first time we ever went, whenever people would talk about, oh, my lifelong dream is to go to Israel. I want to walk where Jesus walked and be baptized in the Jordan River and all these things. There was never this part of me that just craved that experience. No, we didn't grow up in any kind of family where it was the holy land. No, not at all. Not at all. In fact, there's a lot of places I would have chosen to go to first because it felt like it would be really boring to me. Isn't that terrible to say? Well, but- no, but I never wanted to go to the Middle East because I saw myself as a strong, independent female. And I thought, well, I just am not going to choose to put myself in the Middle East. Yeah, I know, which but- is ironic seeing as how I you know. ended up living there. Right. Um, but yeah, I, it just isn't a place I would have chosen to go. I just didn't have this natural draw and curiosity about the land of Israel. But on our way to Singapore, we moved to Singapore with our sons when they were younger, and um, we decided Cindy was living in Israel at the time, and we thought this would be a good opportunity to go check it out. She's there. That makes it easy. We'll go to the land for a couple of days and take our children, because even if you don't want to expose yourself to things sometimes, you certainly want your children to be fully exposed to all of these amazing things. So we did. We went for a few days. And um, when I think about that particular trip, because it was just my husband and I and the boys with Cindy, and I have a picture of the two of them sitting on either side of Cindy. The two boys. The two boys. 
sitting on a wall overlooking the valley, which I don't remember the name of. Ayla Valley. Ayla Valley. If you're telling the story, I think you are. Oh, okay. <laughs> I think it's the Ayla Valley. Ayla Valley, which is where the David and Goliath narrative played out. Yeah. And so I have a picture and it's of their backs and Cindy's in the middle and she's reading the story to them as she's pointing the land out. And on this hill, this is where Goliath stood and the Philistines came from around. You know, it was amazing. The story just took on an entirely different texture because we were standing right there where it happened. And, you know, like anyone who reads a book, you kind of visualize what the characters look like. You visualize the scenario, you all of it, the scenery, you visualize all of it. But then when you're hit with the reality of it, it, it puts everything on its head. It right. just changes everything. Right. Um, so that's the thing I remember with them. That and the fact that that we almost all boiled to death in the dead sea. We had sea. some pretty extreme <laughs> moments, of which I'm so pretty sure hot. I'm never going to live down. I also... <laughs> Made them hike the snake path it's at Masada. It's true. We hiked much. up Masada once they had closed it because it was too hot. And morning. I was I trying to bribe one of my children up to the top of the hill with M&Ms. Like, if you can just make it around this next curve, you can have another M&M. It was very dramatic. And that is not only something I will never live down, but is also something they will never forget. And so now let's turn our attention to Dr. Rob Ribby, who can explain more about why these experiences are so powerful for authentic learning. Welcome. Thanks. Good to be here. <laughs> could we could we start by uh, because you have one of the best commutes to work of anyone I know? Can you tell us about your commute to work? Yeah. Well, I work at Honey Rock, and it's a campus and camp of Wheaton College that's located on a lake. And at the end of the lake there, it goes into a river and I live down the river. So about half the time during the year, I canoe to work about a mile and a half commute via canoe with eagles and beaver and otter and occasional loon and deer walking in the water on the side of the river. So it's not bad. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> How long does that take? A mile and a half commute uh, on the river? 12 minutes, 10 to okay. 12 minutes. What do you do in the winter? Because well, the winter lasts a long time here. The river stays open a lot until it gets really cold or into February. So I can still canoe in the winter and I'll canoe to where the ice on the lake is and just pull the canoe up on the ice and then walk across the ice. Or I'll canoe across the river and then uh, just hike in. And if it's deep snow, then you got to use snowshoes. So that becomes part of the adventure too. Right. Are there times when you can't canoe and you drive? Uh, yeah. And if it's like negative 20, I'll drive. Does that change the way you end up approaching your day? Because it, the day has begun in a different way, engaged in mechanics instead of on a canoe. Um, it might. I have not actually thought about that. Oh. But... One of the cool things about working here at Honey Rock is that our whole staff community and student community gets together at 745 for a community devotion every day and for 15, 20 minutes. And so whether I drive or canoe, the gathering of community and kind of sending our hearts and minds is how I start the day. And for me, that's recorrects what happened before. 
<laughs> Whatever the craziness <laughs> Whatever of the commute was. was. Exactly. <laughs> Which I guarantee did not include traffic, red lights, waiting for trains. So, Is it your experience here at Honey Rock that led you down the path of professionally and academically studying experiential education? Absolutely. Growing up in camp and in the outdoors and on the athletic field, um, I mean, experience has always been a teacher for me, but I didn't know that experiential learning was actually like an academic discipline. A thing. Until I got to grad school, which was soon after my first summer leading wilderness trips, when I was like, this is my spot. I think this is what I can do. So I started grad school and learned what experiential ed is. And I actually uh, remember going to my first Association for Experiential Education conference in St. Paul somewhere during grad school, year one or year two, not having ever heard of that before either. And walking across the bridge over the Mississippi River, like having this identity moment where I was I'm an experiential educator. That's me. That's what my thing is. That's what my heart is. And from that moment on, that became kind of the focus. Yeah. And I was blessed after grad school to be able to get hired here. So we met in Israel. Uh, we were on a trip together in Israel. And uh, when I found out what your job was, well, it was actually very similar to what I was doing when I was in Israel, but it was the first time I could really geek out with someone who had professionally studied the effects of experiential learning and experiential education, which is so thrilling and exciting. Um, I personally tend to feel that when I teach in the classroom, there's something muted. And when I teach experientially, it's loud somehow. But that's a very casual way of me explaining it. How do you like to explain what experiential learning actually is? Well, core to the idea is that experience, and by experience, I mean, because everything's an experience. If you have a conversation with somebody in a room, it's an experience. If a professor's lecturing for an hour, it's an experience. But by experience, we think more of fully engaged, like holistically engaged. So body and movement, mind, emotions, and social and relational context, conversation, engagement with other people. Pure experiential educators would say that experiential learning is learner-centered versus content-centered or uh, teacher-centered. So what's happening in the heart and mind and soul of the student is what's driving the learning and is what the learning is. I'd also say that uh, experiential learning is very process oriented. So we yeah, what start, does that mean? <laughs> we start with an idea of our hopes for the session, which typically is not necessarily just a content learned, but a what's going to happen in the life of the student. And you start out and typically you start out with a reflection or a challenge or an experience that engages the whole person and again it's in a social context and then the experience flows and when you get to the place where you're asking questions or generating reflection on the experience you have no clue where it's going to go and so that's where it's process oriented in the sense that then as a as a facilitative teacher you can guide the 
process. You can respond to the questions or the conversation or with the experience and ask other questions that generate more whatever coming from the life of the students. And uh, I just love it because it feels like every learning time, uh, not teaching session, I'd say it's a learning time, a learning experience. It's you get to be surprised. You get to see where it goes. Even as the professor. Even as right? the professor. Because you can't control how people are going to process information. Exactly. Right. And it's very, I mean, the word we use here at Honey Rock is it's facilitative. We are facilitative leaders and teachers. What if you actually have a list of data points the students need to learn, right? They actually are taking yep. a class because they have to get from point zero to point ten. They need to be able to prove at the end of the semester they learned something. Yep. So how do you do data and experience and make it centered on the learner? How do you do it all? That's a great question. Uh, we actually have a model for this. Typical pure experiential education, uh, it's action and reflection. So you have an action, you have an activity, you have an experience, and then as the facilitative leader, you ask questions, you generate reflection by the students on their experience. Hmm. And if you have pure student-centered learning, then it's like whatever truth the student discovers is their truth, which as Christians, we're a little bit nervous about. Yeah, what does that do with absolute truth? Right, exactly. So <laughs> how we've modified that at Honey Rock is that it's not just experience reflection that are a two-polled um, paradigm, but we add T for capital T truth as the third peg of the triangle. Hmm. And so what I uh, try to do in our learning sessions is experience and reflection, but then based on the reflection, based on the experience, based on what God is doing in the moment, we bring in capital T truth that is relevant to the conversation, that is relevant to the experience that is maybe for the student, it's pushing them to an area where they're uncomfortable or it's creating a disequilibrium, which generates more reflection and more conversation. Uh, sometimes the truth is arriving when the students are asking, asking a question and they're in a stuck spot right. and it's like the light bulbs right. go off. Right. But because the truth comes attached to questions the students are actually asking rather than Oftentimes, we're giving them information and truth, and it's not related to any questions they're asking. We're giving them answers. Or sometimes I'm the one asking the questions, and they have to respond with an answer, exactly. right? It's not their questions. It's my questions exactly. to test them on something. So that's where I think always bringing in truth and the big ideas, but it's in response to student motivation, student questions, in response to the challenges, the problems that come from the experience and the reflection working together. And I find that as far as the hopes for the learning, for the class, or for the whole course, we always get covered. The core truths we need to get covered, it's just done in a completely different way. Right. Do you interact with professors who are accustomed to traditional teaching, who just can't wrap their minds around the value of experiential learning? learning? Uh, very much so. Yeah. And I would say especially at Wheaton over the years. We have, have had so many professors teach here from all disciplines. Uh, one of the most popular disciplines at Honey Rock is actually philosophy. As they experience the environment and they experience the 
the way community and experience connect with their courses. Uh, they just absolutely come to love this style of learning. And uh, I've seen many professors take what they've learned here about student-oriented and process-oriented learning back to the classroom at Wheaton. There are folks who are the hardcore academic classroom-based teaching that uh, look at it and just say it's just fun and games in the wood and they don't get it. Right. But uh, over the years, the more and more students and more and more faculty who have participated here have seen that change even from some of the people who didn't get it the most at the beginning. So it's been awesome. It's I find sometimes I have students who themselves have a hard time making the switch where students come saying to class, I've paid X amount of dollars for a professional to tell me everything. And they just want a list of a whole bunch of data. And even in the classroom, I teach conversationally and I have a hard time getting them to value their own thought process. Like of part of learning is me teaching you how to actually conceive of and verbalize these ideas. And sometimes that, even on the student end, becomes a little bit of a challenge. Do you find you have to teach students themselves how to be internally reflective and how to participate well in this learning? You're shaking your head. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Definitely have to um, do that. And what's interesting is when our grad students come to Honey Rock, we actually don't start class for like two weeks. We actually have two weeks where we are bringing them into the environment, bringing them into the process, bringing them into the community. Mm. So within five days of arriving here, they do a three or four day wilderness trip in community with their professors. And it, it, it really is a teaching people how to live and to be and to learn in a completely different way. Now, a lot of the people that are coming for a master's degree in outdoor leadership are already tweaked that way. Right. But still, a lot of them come out of undergrad and they're used to receiving the information and giving it back and right. have to be kind of taught how to do it different. What is it about a context of being outdoors or here at Honey Rock that maybe helps to influence how people experience parts of who God is? Uh, that's a great question. When people come away to Honey Rock from the noise and busyness of the city, their soul just relaxes. And they can sit by the lake for hours, whereas at home they can't sit still for five minutes. And to me, there's just something that happens when we're in creation that it's part of who we are. It's part of how we are to live and to know God. And in our day and age, when we're separated from creation in the cities. Outside means walking on pavement or playing on the soccer field that's perfectly manicured with lines put down and adults controlling the experience. Yeah, it's outdoors, but it's very, very different from the very natural environment where man doesn't control it. Mankind does not uh, have a say what the weather is going to be about. So that kind of connection with creation, I think, just does something to our soul that we're intended to have. How is that changing their spiritual lives or their perception of who God is? What are they learning experientially in their physical bodies that helps them understand a spiritual and thus somewhat invisible concept? 
I think that the depth of learning and the the sense, and I'm thinking here of not just emotional sense, but spiritual sense, when you're fully engaged physically and like your body's actually moving and uh, you're doing that again in this context of relationships and interactions, sometimes they're nice and rosy, other times they're frustrating and angst-producing. It just deepens the learning and deepens the connection to the Spirit and to the Lord. And we do a lot here where we require our students to like take half days or hours of reflection. Like it's it can it's even part of classes where it's like right now we want you to go off for an hour and a half and just journal about what we've talked about for the last hour and a half. And so they go out and they sit by the lake or they sit if it's winter at a window looking out over freshly falling snow and uh I just think there's a depth of learning and interaction with our soul and with the spirit that unparalleled. And then the other thing I see happening in our environment in creation is that it's a place of equipping, a place of challenge, a place of discovery. Um, when you're we- leading wilderness trips, uh, whatever the weather is, is what you get. And the dynamics of having to cook food and the dynamics of movement and uh, time just changes. Um, There's just all these inherent challenges that stretch us, that make us uncomfortable, that push us into places of discovery about who we are and how we exist and how we relate to people and how we handle discomfort, how we handle struggle. And so God uses creation to reveal ourselves to ourselves in a sense. And it takes that special moment to stop and think or stop and say, I'm actually smelling this particular scent and I'm feeling this particular thing in my muscles. And that has a a significant power of stoking memory later on. Absolutely. I think, which is sometimes we undervalue how potent smell, hearing, taste can can be. Yes. You know, it's yeah. There's certain places at Honey Rock that have a very distinct smell. And if anything close to that smell I experience somewhere else, the brain and the heart immediately go to the place at Honey Rock. Right. Bud Williams, who was a longtime professor here at Honey Rock, uh, he used to talk about the power of memory making experiences and how if we have a significant experience and the memory and the lesson that comes with that experience, whenever we think of that experience, the memory and the lesson comes with it. That's right. So we have people that were here in 1969 and the 70s leaving, leading wilderness trip. These historic honey rockers were sharing stories, and every one of them, it was an experience at a place right. with some sort of event that happened. And then as they talk about the story of the event out comes the lesson that changed their life. Right. It is so, I find that because we spend so much time on technology, on technological devices connected to people around the world, which that connection is amazing and such a massive benefit. And I love that, but it sometimes makes us oblivious to the place in which we are. And then I feel like we lose the power of the lessons we learn in certain places because we failed to market like in a physical place That's right. somehow yep. with the, 
the sensory data yep. almost. Yep, I agree. Yeah. We are doing this interview, this recording here at Honey Rock. And so we are currently surrounded by trees and the lake is just outside. And there is an aspect of feeling small when I come out here. Nature is so much bigger than me out here than in Philadelphia. And I, I love and adore. I love being in the city. I adore the city and it's full of its own things. But I'm not made into miniature by the city, as I am when I'm in the middle of creation, the natural world seems so much bigger and so much more out of my control. Like you were saying, that something really remarkable about reminding yourself you can't control everything, mm -hmm. and we like to control things. Absolutely. Yeah, Theodore Roosevelt, uh, the word legend, I don't know if it's legend or accurate story, I think it's accurate, uh, when he was president back you know, in the early 1900s, and uh, there wasn't as much electricity and street lights and all this ambient light that's going on. Um, supposedly, every night, he would go outside the White House, stand on the lawn, look up at the stars for 10 or 15 minutes in silence, and then uh, people who were with him testify that he said, okay, we feel appropriately small now, we can go to bed. I think wow. that's pretty cool. <laughs> that is cool. <laughs> you have a portion of the graduate program from Wheaton College, but a portion of that program has to happen up here. And there's, I've heard you describe this graduate program as a leadership laboratory. What is it about being at Honey Rock for doing graduate level work but up in this kind of context that allows for this to be a leadership laboratory. I mean, why not some of, a part of me always thinks, oh, you need to be in an urban program with lots of business stuff happening and not in the middle of the woods. Yeah. So I take the experience reflection truth triangle and just place it over the top of our grad program. Mm. And so the students are in a community here at Honey Rock, that's a professional staff community running a ministry, which is very similar for most people in camp ministry in our country, is that they're living in community, working, eating, living with the people that they work with and do ministry with. So it's this community experience. So there's the experience of being in the environment and on a team, and every one of our grad students has a professional level job while they're here, graduate assistantship for two years. So they have tons of experience. They're designing programs, they're solving problems, they're marketing, they're hiring staff. They are living the experience. So then we generate reflection on that. And then all the classes are the truth hmm. part where that's the academic piece where we're bringing the principles, the skills, the theological basis for what they're doing and why it works and how God uses it to the classroom setting. But they're bringing with them all the experience of working and living at a camp right. to the classroom. Right. So this truth experience thing is constantly interacting the whole time they're in the program. So in my mind, to learn how to do this, learn it in the classroom or learn it by doing it with the classroom informing, right. enhancing, building a foundation. It's very comprehensive. It almost takes the learning instead of Monday, Wednesday, Friday from 8 to 11, it makes it 24 hours a day. It's 24-7. Yeah. It, 
students often talk about how overwhelming and exhausting and um, it is, but it's because it's a whole different kind of, you're never not in class. It's always the learning thing. And so, which is actually right. kind of like life. Right. It is a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> you have very recently started a gap year program for students. So they finish high school, they get to spend a year here developing themselves, their minds, their soul, their leadership skills. Part of that is not only the experience they have here at Honey Rock, but you have very purposefully developed a different contexts they go into. So they go into a, a inner city, right, in mm-hmm. Chicago or mm-hmm. in another Chicago. large city. Um, and then they do an international yep. context. What are you hoping they get by changing context from wilderness? Like why do they then need inner city to figure out leadership skills or figure out international skills? What are you hoping for by changing the context? Uh we actually have four different contexts we consider. Oh, okay. So there's the context of Honey Rock. So they're coming into a culture of Honey Rock. There's the, which includes the outdoors and creation and all the stuff we've talked about already. There's the rural, rural North American Wisconsin context, which with a lot of students coming from urban and suburban environments, rural life is very, very different. Right. Our school, K through 12, has under 600 students total. Right. And most of them are coming (laughs) from schools with 1,000 people per class. Right. (laughs) So it's a very different environment. So we introduce them to rural America, Northwoods, and then the international in Costa Rica, and then finally the urban environment. And our goals on that are a couple. First of all, uh, the world is a very diverse and complex place. And understanding how people are different, how contexts are different, how those contexts impact how people live and what they value, what are the challenges of those contexts. So it's, it's helping the students to understand people and the globe and the diversity of God's kingdom. And that's a huge part of it. Another is part of our the goal of our program is for them to find their niche, their calling, and so by giving them exposure to different contexts and people and different ways that ministry happens in different places based on the needs, we're helping them to maybe find their spot, find their place, their calling, their passion. And then I think the third value is that uh, contrast teaches. Mm. So rural life, you live it for a while, and then you go to Costa Rica, and then you go to the urban environment, you actually learn about the new environment you went to, but you also learn a lot about the environment you came from because there's contrast. Right. And so it's fun to see students discover assumptions they had about people and about places and about different contexts and uh, actually be challenged because the contrast produces this awareness of, oh, I'm seeing it that way and here's why, and they start making connections. Right, yep. Because we are blind to our own context. Yep. Usually we can't we can't see the lenses that that we look through, we can't see them unless we have the contrast, like you said, of what the option is. And it doesn't have to be good or bad. Just different. It's just different. Yep. And then you can choose. 
Okay, I have a final question because we are at camp and probably a lot of people have camp experiences. Uh, even if it was short, you know, they're not leadership skills in camp, but maybe they just came as a camper or they know people who came as a camper. And there's uh, in stories that I hear, you know, camp is like this special place for this one particular time in the summer. And then they go home to normal life, right? So how do you make sure for your students who are here, the leadership laboratory for it to be effective needs to impact their lives when they leave? So how do you make sure that they're, the power of the context here can stay with them when they go? How do you make sure that that translation happens? Very purposely, um, especially for, well, I'd say we do it for campers uh, as well as like summer staff that are here for 14 weeks or grad students that are here for two years. The transition in and out of this alternative context, if you will, is really, really critical. So just like I talked a few minutes ago about how grad students coming into Honey Rock, we take two weeks to kind of slowly orient them to this new world they're coming into. We do the same thing with the gap year students. Theirs is a little bit longer. Their wilderness trip's a little bit longer. But it's a very purposeful, when you're coming in, how should you approach it? We take as much time on the back end as you're getting ready to leave it, helping the students to name the learning, to name the highlight experiences, to come up with the principles, the lessons, to talk about how they're different, and then to be very purposeful about, well, how am I going to take this and live it when I go forward? So uh, in the summer, when summer is ending and all the staff are leaving after 10, 12 weeks, a lot of intense experiences, intense community, a lot of challenge and wrestling and sleepless nights and tireless service, we actually take three days where it's a process of solo, a process of questions that we ask them. They have to write about what's happened. The whole goal is to help them name what's happened so they can take it home. And this idea of naming is critical. Another thing we do is... Well, it's, it's naming, but it's recognizing that context is going to shift. And, that's right. And so it's paying attention to what is happening instead of just saying it's me in my time and in my head and I take that everywhere I go, it's going, you are here, you will be there. Exactly. And so the other part of it, though, is we have to help. When people name it, they have to name it in community and in relationship because... Meaning with other people with other present, people, not right. just in their journal? It's not just them. So they share about it, talk about it, and then because of the internet and cell phones and all the social media we have... Uh, going back and then staying connected with the people if they're not in your new world, which often they are because they go back to college together. The whole goal is that you're going back with these lessons and these goals and these hopes and other people to help you keep moving mm. in the direction that you wanted to go as you were leaving and coming into the new place. So, so almost having people accountable or that you are accountable to based on the ideas you formed in the other place. Exactly. Yeah, nice. Yeah. So, but yeah, transition out is huge and we have to take time to, I think of it as a bridge. So if I'm in this alternative environment and I'm going to my permanent or quote unquote regular world, uh, I have to build the bridge from where I am to where I'm going. But I also need people in the world I'm going to 
to build the bridge towards me. So besides what I've said already, they have to talk to people that are weren't part of their experience, that are now part of their new regular world, and say, here's what happened, here's what I learned, here's who I'm becoming, here's what I want to be part of this new world, and have those people build the bridge towards them as they enter back. So that's another thing we encourage them to do, whether they do it or not. But A follow-up conversation. Yes. <laughs> When I was editing this podcast and heard Rob talk about not being in control of a situation, which is then a chance for learning, I thought of our present context with COVID-19. Many of us don't feel like we're in control, and based on what I hear people saying in my context, we are reacting differently to that lack of control. This concept brings so much of my work with Theology of Place to mind because... Well, I am currently sitting in my flat considering how responding to the virus demands a community awareness we are not accustomed to, but is much more in line with what was demanded out of life for the Israelites. So issues from Deuteronomy regarding not overconsuming, even when fearful about sustenance for life, or caring for the vulnerable among you, or taking personal responsibility for the whole. All of these things are painfully relevant in our lives right now in ways that we previously only had to imagine. Now, Rob talked about the environment of creation as a place of equipping and a place of challenge and discovery, because whatever weather you get is what you have to deal with, and the dynamics of life still have to happen. So maybe for you... It is the self-isolation or social distancing or lack of work. All of these are inherent challenges that make us uncomfortable and are pushing us into places of discovery of who we are and how we handle discomfort and struggle. Next week, I'm going to continue the theme that Rob ended on when he was talking about the significance of building a bridge from the place in which so much purposeful change has happened into the new place where you are going. I will talk with Dr. Muhea Karyanjahi about how nature influences spiritual lessons and how ceremonial rites of passage can be used for people in religious context. Mohea is from Kenya, but is now teaching in the Northwoods of Wisconsin. Boy, talk about a changing context. You will not want to miss what he has to say. New artwork is available now for this particular podcast, which means that this podcast is now available on all of your favorite listening sites. So go back, listen to any podcast you may have missed. Um, it's easier now than ever before. You can send links to your friends. You can favorite certain episodes. Subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any of the future episodes. And I'd also really appreciate it if you could rate the podcast. That will help people who are looking for Context Matters find this one, and then also people who are looking for a new podcast to listen to to find Context Matters. Hats off to Peter Lordson at Sycamore Sound for the music that you hear. And I'm always grateful to my Patreon supporters like Kathy and Scott Parker and Mindy and Bon Koo. And really a special thanks goes out to Mindy and Bon. They are some of our healthcare workers who are on the front lines of this epidemic. Thank you to you both for the sacrifices you're making. To all of my Patreon partners, 
thank you. Your financial help makes these podcast episodes possible. And if you want to join our Patreon tribe and get exclusive access to updates, videos, and chapters to my upcoming book, the link is available on my website at www.narrativeaplace.com. Thanks for being here. See you at the podcast conversation table next week. Mm-hmm.